Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released a report in August demonstrating the harmful relationship between climate change and how we humans are using land for food and agriculture. The warnings were pretty dire. Agriculture and deforestation account for nearly a quarter of all human-made greenhouse gas emissions. At the same time, the world population is increasing and poverty is declining, meaning food consumption patterns, particularly around meat, are rapidly evolving. More food needs to be produced and the demand for meat is expected to increase. Needless to say, big changes in how we produce and consume food need to take place if we are to curb the worst effects of climate change. On the line with me to discuss how we can feed the world without destroying the planet is Timothy Searchinger. He's a research scholar at Princeton University and fellow at the World Resources Institute. Recently, he was the lead author of a report by the World Resources Institute called Creating a Sustainable Food Future, a Menu of Solutions to Feed Nearly 10 Billion People by 2050. We kick off discussing the IPCC report and the significance of its findings before having a solutions-based conversation about how we can better balance our relationship between food and the land required to produce it. A quick note before we begin, as always, I love hearing from you guys. If there are suggestions of topics you want me to cover or people you want me to interview, please do reach out. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. If there's anything on your mind as well, just feel free to send it my way. I love hearing from you. I know I say this often, but you know I produce this podcast twice a week, every week uh, for you. Uh, so if there's something on your mind, just let me know. And of course, many thanks to those of you who are supporting the show, helping me do what I do by becoming premium subscribers through recurring monthly contributions to the show. You unlock bonus episodes and other rewards like access to my news clips service, Dawn's Digest. I will even mail you a Global Dispatches podcast sticker. So there. Uh, No, but seriously, thank you. I appreciate it. You help sustain the show. Thank you. Now, here is my conversation with Timothy Searchinger of Princeton University and the World Resources Institute. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
so the IPCC came out with a report on land use and climate change. And part of the report talks about the threat of climate change to land use, including the threat that forests will dry up in some locations and therefore lose their values as forests uh, and the threat that climate change poses to agricultural production, uh, which will above all uh, be problematic in tropical areas, neotropical areas where uh, food security is already uh, lowest and the risk of hunger highest. So part of the report was about that. And then part of the report is also about uh, the role that agricultural land has in contributing to climate change. So agriculture is about a quarter of all the world's greenhouse gas emissions when you count both the production process and the clearing of forests and other lands for as agriculture expands. And to feed the world, we need more or less 50% more food by 2050, at least compared to 2010. Uh, we need a lot more meat, at least if people as they get richer continue to eat more meat and milk. Um, and today, most people in the world eat very little meat and milk. And as they get a little bit richer, they're going to want to eat more. And those are very resource intensive. And so we need to provide all this additional food. And at the same time, uh, agriculture has to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. And then on top of that, most strategies for climate change require that agricultural land area actually decline and that that land that has been freed up is used in one way or another to uh, sequester, to store carbon, for example, through reforestation. And so given all of these challenges, how do you go about doing that? And the, um, you know, the report highlights a few things that our, our, our work and others have highlighted, including holding down meat consumption by the wealthy, and um, that reduces total land use demands, increasing the productivity of agricultural land, meaning more food per hectare, uh, more food per uh, ton of nitrogen, more food per liter of water, um, the, more, more food per animal, actually. Mm -hmm. These are all critical uh, ways of trying to achieve these goals. And then I want to get into those like specific solutions because I know you've done mm -hmm. a, a lot of research around that. But I, I guess mm -hmm. I, I want to sort of set up and understand the problem a, a little deeper first because the way you describe it, you know, it almost seems like Malthusian um, in that you know a, a growing world population is going to need more food. Uh, more of that food will probably be meat because people are getting wealthier. Yet in order to do make a meaningful impact to get under that 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius cap by 2050, we're actually going to need to reduce uh, the land space we use for agriculture and reforest it. So like something has to give, right? Well, there are a lot of things that have to happen. And the truth is that uh, the IPCC report only describes them in some generality. Uh, I was the lead author of a report by the World Resources Institute, the World Bank, and the UN that came out just uh, three weeks ago. And I think that report, which is also quite long, uh, has a little bit more of a specific strategy for how you get there. We model it out. 
And so the short answer is there are a lot of things that need to be done. Uh, uh, one of which is to hold down diets. And we particularly focus on the opportunity to uh, reduce beef consumption because beef is particularly um, resource intensive, generates huge greenhouse gas emissions. And it, for example, uh, in the U.S. diet, beef contributes around 45 percent to 50 percent of the greenhouse gas emissions. It, it occupies about almost half of the land that goes into the diet, but only provides 3% of the calories. So holding down beef consumption is a particularly important strategy. Reducing food food loss and waste, that's an important strategy. Um, uh, getting rid of biofuels is an important strategy in our, in our report. Um, and then on the population front, on the demand side, actually educating girls in Africa is a critical part of the strategy. So what a lot of people don't know is that more or less outside of sub-Saharan Africa, fertility rates have either come down to replacement levels or are well on their way to coming down to replacement levels. We're going to have about a billion more people in Asia because of high fertility rates in the past, meaning large numbers of uh, children per, per woman. And as the population matures, it kind of thickens, but you have lots of young people around. Uh, but only in sub-Saharan Africa as a region uh, do we still have high fertility rates. And a lot of that is linked to low education levels for women and high mortality rates for children, as well as lack of access to family planning. And every society in the world that has uh, managed to educate most of its girls and reduce uh, child mortality rates and provide access to family planning has greatly reduced its fertility rates of every possible religion in every region, uh, even very poor countries. So that actually is an important element. So on the demand side, those are the four key ones that in our report we really emphasize, and they appear in varying degrees in different places in the IPCC report. So, so can I can I drill down a little bit on on the beef issue in, in particular? Mm -hmm. um, I guess, you know, what strategies are there to reduce the appeal of beef to like the, you know, Western diet or, you know, maybe specifically like the, the American diet, like building like social stigma around it or like, like what, what do you suspect might be a useful strategy here? Yeah. Well, the first thing uh, to be aware of is that the average American, as well as the average European eats about a third less beef per person than he or she did in the 1960s. And that's largely due to the fact that chicken became very cheap and uh, plentiful in kind of breast meat. Back in the 1970s, a white breast meat chicken, boneless chicken was a luxury item and now it's cheap and routine. And so there's been a lot of switching to chicken. Um, that What that tells you is if you provide a satisfactory alternative, uh, people may switch. Uh, probably will switch. So actually, these these food alternatives, these uh, beef alternatives that we now have, and uh, that really taste like beef, uh, the the Impossible Burger is really it tastes exactly like a hamburger for most people. And um, when that becomes cheaper, which should happen fairly soon, there really won't be the excuse uh, to eat beef. And I think at least hamburgers, there'll be that won't replace. Um, steaks and things like that. So that's that type of thing is a big measure. Stigma sure helps. 
although we're not saying people have to eat no beef, we just want them to eat less beef. Um, about half of the average uh, of the beef today, about one and a half hamburgers equivalent per person per week instead of three. Um, so I think that I think that's a real I think there's a real opportunity there to reduce uh, to reduce beef. Uh, it's harder on a global scale to reduce all animal products, including milk. And, and that's because so few people eat uh, a lot of animal products today. And even in our projections by 2050, based on uh, uh, projections of the Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, 6 billion people still eat quite a little uh, milk and meat. And we think that we kind of have to hold down milk and meat consumption in the U.S. wealthier countries in order to make a little bit more room for them. But I think substitutes are going to be key. Culture will therefore be key. Uh, governments right now and, and any private party can start by just trying to shift diets. Uh, we're working, WRI is working with food companies trying to figure out the best ways of marking, marketing, quote, plant-forward foods. So these are important. And uh, but there are only some things. I mean, th this is on the demand side. We should also talk about the production side, because on the production side, that's still where the, most of the work will be done. So, so explain. So talk, talk through some of the, the challenges you're seeing on the production side and also um, what potential you know, solutions or ideas for moving forward in a sustainable way right. might be. So on the production side, uh, the first thing is simply increasing output of food per acre per hectare. Just like being and more efficient. Being more efficient, uh, increasing yields. Now, uh, we've done that. We've dramatically increased yields since 1960. The reason, uh, reason Malthus ultimately proved wrong was both that uh, farmers were able to increase yields a great deal and because we expanded agricultural land by a lot. The problem now is that expanding agricultural land is not an option if we want to solve climate change because doing that releases uh, carbon dioxide stored in soils and, and uh, vegetation and up quite a lot. And so uh, we can't do that. We have to do it all through yield gain. And the other problem is that some of the easy ways to increase yields are now uh, no longer available. So there's very limited potential at uh, to expand ir irrigation uh, there. It, almost every farm in the world already gets a lot of fertilizer with the exception of sub-Saharan Africa. So adding more fertilizer isn't, isn't easy. Um, so we have to do other things to increase yields by a lot. Now, the good news is we have been doing a lot of other things to increase uh, yields. Uh, but now we have to, but even, even with that, we've still expanded agricultural land. So we need to do that even more. And a lot of that, so there are practices that farmers can do, and we need to support farmers to do those uh, management practices. Uh, but a lot is going to be required of uh, increased, improved breeding. So at the end of the day, improved breeding of seeds is really critical. And the good news is that, as probably mo most people know, there has been a revolution in uh, molecular biological techniques that are mostly used for human health. And that means for the first time, we can actually understand, uh, at least a fair, to a fair degree, the genetics of what we're doing when we breed or when, when scientists breed. In the past, it was a kind of more or less a trial and error, a little bit more than trial and error. You had some, you track things, but you were basically putting two 
crops together, breeding them, and, uh, two, two varieties of the same crop together, breeding them, and hoping that they came out with something better. And then you do that a lot, a lot, a lot, and you always pick the better, the better crop, uh, the better, the better uh, seedling that emerges. But we, it wasn't really done through planning, and now we can understand the genetics of this. And there is, I think, a large potential. It's uncertain, but there is a uh, uh, probably a large potential to improve that. And that means we need to increase the amount of money we devote to crop breeding. Uh, and so that's, but it's not like it's a huge amount. We devote a remarkably small amount of money uh, to these challenges uh, globally today. So we need to, we need to increase the funding that goes into crop breeding. That's one example. Yeah, another I, that. I, you know, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Cause that, well, well, so, I just say, well, your example on, on crop breeding sort of, like leads me to like another set of questions around the kind sure. of political support that some of these efforts right. are getting, but let me bracket that and, and hear what you were about to say. Cause it sounded well, interesting. So the, I always love examples in, yeah. in this context. So thank you. Yeah. So the other context, the other thing that people don't really appreciate is that increasing the output of milk and meat from grazing land is critically important. So, you know, even as we say, Hey, by the way, hold down your consumption of beef and, and dairy products as well. Uh, we, we need to do both. We need to hold down that consumption by the wealthy because poor people are going to eat a little bit more. And we still need to dramatically increase the amount of milk and meat that is produced for every hectare of grazing land. So two thirds of the agricultural land in the world is actually grazing land. And some of that, uh, was kind of native grazing land. Uh, in other words, it was always grazing land. It was just used by wild animals. But about 40% of that was naturally forested. And when we expand our, and that's a huge area. That's an area uh, about, you know, one and a half times the continental U.S. globally. So this is grazing land that would be forest if we weren't using it for grazing. And that loses a huge amount of carbon. And, uh, so we need to produce a lot more beef, even if we hold change our diets, a lot more milk without expanding land. That means we need to do more on each acre of grazing land. Now, the good news is that there's a lot of potential to increase that, to graze better. And how do you do that? Well, you move the animals around a lot. You uh, either use uh, nitrogen-fixing legumes to help fertilize the grassland, or you use a fertilizer, um, you provide better health care to the animals, uh, uh, you provide supplemental feed. So uh, grazing land tends to be land that is wet at some times of the year and dry at other times, and the animals lose a lot of weight in those dry periods, and they need to have uh, feed supplied in those dry periods. And we know how to do this because there's plenty of grazing land that grazes very efficiently even though most of the grazing land in the world is not grazed efficiently. So why is that? The reason is if you don't treat land as having an environmental value that, that is either protected or paid for, uh, cut down the trees and throw a cow on it. And that's, you know, it's just no matter, you, you lose this huge environmental benefit, including all the carbon stored, and you just throw a cow on it, but it's a way of profiting from it. So huge amounts of land have been cleared just to have one cow or even less than one cow on it uh, at, uh, per hectare. And so 
that making that happen is critical and that gets a tiny fraction of the attention even of crop breeding it's interesting and, you know, i i, I don't yeah. follow this issue obviously you know nearly as closely as as you i'm sort of passively sort of interested in this but the idea of increasing efficiency around grazing is not one i've encountered before um but it also sort of raises that question i wanted to ask earlier which is you know you've described that there's like a lot of technical innovation, um, a lot of know-how uh, around mm -hmm. what can be done. We sort of like, we know what needs to be done. Um, what political obstacles are there to, you know, implementing some of those ideas, like say, you know, around, you know, more efficient grazing of cattle. Yeah. I mean, that's all politics in a way, um, but it's also economic too. So, if there is no financial reward for protecting forests, then everybody wants to clear them. And so right now you don't get a financial reward. Who pays for it? The country has to pay for it or somebody else has to pay for it. Or there just has to be a law that says you can't clear forest. Uh, but if you're going to do that and there's this demand for food, you also have to make it easier at the same time uh, to increase your yields on existing lands. So there are huge barriers to this, uh, unclear tenure, lack of access to capital, lack of technical support, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, expensive inputs in, in some areas. And what you need to make this happen is a very challenging deal, which is in effect, the world has to help increase the yields of this grazing land, particularly uh, in, the, in the Latin America, uh, in the, uh, the whole neotropical band. But in return, developing countries have to promise and carry through on protecting forests. So there is a rational global deal to be made that would benefit absolutely everybody. Uh, but that has to be carried out. And powerful special interests want to clear uh, land as well. And meanwhile, in the developed countries, you have to be willing to um, offer some additional financial support for this. So it's all, but then people actually have to carry it out, despite the fact that anybody gets an incentive to cheat and clear and clear more forest. Uh, if it's only one, you know, a group or right there. So basically, we need a kind of a global deal. It's a hugely politically challenging uh, deal, and uh, in fact. There's a kind of a wicked problem, which is that uh, if, a, if, a, if a poor country becomes uh, better at producing food, it may actually expand its food production and its area there. So we, by definition, if you need 50 percent more food without more uh, land clearing, you need to increase yields by 50 percent. But if some areas increase their yields where they're very poor, you may shift where agriculture occurs into those areas. Well, the good news is if you shift land, you can reforest land uh, where you're abandoning agriculture. But the problem is we tend to shift into the tropics where we clear very valuable forests, which have a lot of carbon and a lot of biodiversity as well. So we have to avoid land shifting. We talk a lot about that in our in our report, creating a sustainable food future, and um, that's something that isn't broadly understood. So that's a political challenge of the of the highest order, and um, it, it's got to require a whole whole new level of commitment if we're going to do that uh, from a technical standpoint. 
this would be the most rational thing in the world to do to uh, solve climate change. It would be cheap, measured from the standpoint of the world and the global economy, maybe even free, uh, because a lot of uh, improvements, intensification can be a lot cheaper, actually, once you've got it really uh, going. But at the same time, there's always the incentive that anybody has to get away with clearing forests and producing uh, more cattle, putting more cattle on that land. And so that's an enforcement challenge. Uh, so this is a huge challenge from a political standpoint. Uh, there are other parts that are more uh, due to technological innovation, but th this is a this is a huge challenge. Um, so you, I mean, so your your explanation just there kind of offered some it's like policy. Um, prescriptions for for how we might kind of move forward mm -hmm. in a sustainable way. Uh, you know, is there? I mean, would that be sort of the single most impactful policy uh, intervention uh, that you would suggest that could um, make land use and agriculture and food consumption more sustainable? Or are there other sort of policy options out there that you might want to cite as well? Yeah. So that that number one is uh, implement policies to increase out output of food and particularly in grazing land while protecting forests. Link that to forests. Quid pro quo, you know, aid, but in return for protecting forests. That has got to be explicit, but it's also got to be more generous. No, uh, you know, it, and, and it's also got to be more generous from a simple standpoint of basic equity. I mean, we already cleared our forests, uh, basically, and Europe cleared its forest and to have all this big agricultural land. And you can't put the burden only on the world's poorest people without helping them to at least compensating them fully for that by helping them to increase yields on their existing agricultural land. So that would be that would be uh, recommendation number one. Uh, recommendation number uh, well, I've already given you some recommendations with regard to um, demand reduction. One of the simplest things is to stop turning land into bioenergy in a world that has huge competition for food and a forest we don't but we have a fixed amount of land we don't have land to use for bioenergy it comes at the expense of one of those other two things and it's incredibly inefficient so on three quarters of the world's land you can get at least a hundred times more energy using a solar technique than using bioenergy and that means that if you have a hundred spare hectares of land if you put one reforest 99 and put solar on one, you get the same amount of energy and 100 times the greenhouse gas reduction. So that's an obvious thing. And that's where governments in a variety of ways are making things worse because they treat land as free. Hmm. Um, but then on the uh, another area is uh, pushing forth innovation. So I'm here in Denmark where the politics is such that the Danish agricultural industry, all the key players have committed to go to carbon neutrality, zero carbon emissions by 2050, which is actually almost impossible um, and will require a tremendous amount of innovation as well as some kind of offsets and things like that. And in order to do that, so there, and Danish agriculture is already remarkably efficient. And efficient means low greenhouse gas emissions per liter of milk or per you know, kilogram of pork, and those are two big uh, outputs. So what do you do? Uh, you still have a lot of emissions that come from manure managed and from the stomachs of, of cattle, right, which produce uh, methane. How do you deal with those? Well, 
the only way to deal with those is through technological innovations. Now, we have ways of dealing with those now to some extent, but not much. There's a new food additive that's still waiting final approval that looks like it will reduce methane somewhat. There are forms of nitrogen fertilizer that can be much more efficient, and therefore you lose a lot fewer emissions from nitrous oxide, which is a powerful greenhouse gas that comes from nitrogen use on cropland and pasture. Um, but we need to advance these. So the good news, the best news that we discovered in our report is that for every challenge, there was at least some small group of scientists who had made a fair amount of progress, often with tiny budgets. And they, they, they span the categories. Take that nitrogen uh, fertilizer uh, challenge. There are chemicals that can be added to the fertilizer to stabilize it so it you lose a lot less. Right now, more than half of all the nitrogen applied to farm fields is lost to the environment, and some of that becomes a powerful greenhouse gas. And there are chemicals that most of them decades old with little innovation uh, that are, can help improve that. So we want fertilizer companies to have an incentive to improve those. And one of our recommendations is that governments should require that fertilizer companies increase the percentage of fertilizer that they sold over time with these compounds and with increasingly um, uh, uh, good compounds that basically gives them a strong incentive to do the work, to innovate, uh, to improve their fertilizer. On the other hand, there are also amazing biological methods. Um, so there are, there are ways to breed crops so that they are more efficient in their use of fertilizer, so you lose less. There are a group of scientists who have discovered that some plants actually uh, produce their own uh, root chemicals that help stabilize nitrogen in soils. And they're trying to breed that into um, the world's major crops. And it's a tiny group of scientists with about a million dollar a year budget trying to solve one of the world's great uh, challenges. Uh, so that needs more money. So we need a combination of flexible regulation and uh, research and development. Uh, uh, to help move those things forward. And development is another issue. So there are things we know how to do, uh, but require a fair amount of planning. You know, so if you were Apple, so we, for example, we know how to reduce emissions from rice by managing how we manage the water in rice fields. But it's complicated and you need, most rice fields are irrigated. You need to make sure the irrigation is capable of doing this kind of management. So if Apple Computer uh, or Amazon were, or any big company were responsible for reducing the greenhouse gas emissions from rice, the first thing they do is they go out and analyze the world's rice uh, uh, irrigation systems and determine where you do this. But nobody has that job, so nobody's doing it. And so uh, this is a whole issue where it's a huge it's like level like a governance of governance issue. And that's a governance issue. Nobody has. Nobody has the responsibility for doing that. One of the nice things about this IPCC report is obviously for us who work in this field, it doesn't have you know, anything new. That's not its job. Its job is to summarize the science that we know for the rest of the world. But one of the really nice things about this report is the first IPCC report that really has a major theme that the amount of land in the world is fixed, right? And every hectare of land that can produce plants well is very valuable because if we can 
Uh, we need not only to produce more food on the same land, we need to shrink the agricultural area and reforest the bunch of land. And this is the first IPCC report where really that comes through as a major theme. And in fact, uh, the IPCC kind of muffed it in, uh, at various reports uh, in the past where it kind of didn't have a land budget. It was kind of recommending lots of things with land without fully recognizing that there's only a fixed amount of land area. In this report, that error is not made. Uh, and the, the fact that we have limited amount of land and we got to use it well is a dominant theme. And I think that and, and that is being picked up by the press that's been covering it. Uh, and that's a huge theme in my work, a huge theme in our report, uh, creating a sustainable food future. And that's maybe one of the best things to recognize and a theme land of this very conversation. Yeah. yeah, land is valuable. Land is enormous. There isn't any spare land. None. <laughs> we got to use all of our land super efficiently, which means more food for the land producing food, more more carbon for the land that's storing carbon in forests. And that even and if you cared about biodiversity, that's true of that too. Land that that is available uh, for biodiversity needs to be. Uh, manage well to uh, promote that biodiversity. It needs to be selected to do that. I mean, there's just there ain't no more land. You know, uh, we're, we're not making it. That's a good summary of the, uh, the 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 last 25 minutes of conversation. There ain't no more land. <laughs> use it better. Use it wisely. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Timothy. Well, I'm glad glad to talk to you. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Timothy Searchinger. And yeah, I, I sort of foresee myself becoming vegan in the coming years. I'm like mostly a vegetarian now, but not exclusively. Um, not made the full leap yet, but I don't know if my conscience can, can handle it much longer. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.